Good morning, Trace Church. Happy Father's Day, everybody. So, so good to be with you all this morning. Um, I'm Trent. I'm teaching pastor here at Trace. This is the second week of what I'm going to call, I didn't mention this in first service, but what I'm going to call my knee brace sermon season, right? So I am two weeks into a six-week-long rehab with this knee brace on. Uh, I'm a dad. I have a 12-year-old son. He challenged me to a game of basketball. I played against him like I was 20 years old again, and my knee will never be the same as a result. Uh, if you're visiting, so glad you're here. Hope you will enjoy some, bar- some barbecue after the service. Um, we're going to continue our series this morning called Anchors. And this morning, I want to teach you a little bit about why you can trust the Bible. The Bible is absolutely trustworthy, but I want to give you some reasons why you should trust the Bible. So I'm going to share with you a story from my own life where I desperately needed an anchor and the Bible was where I turned. So my wife and I have three wonderful kids, uh, Adrian, who's responsible for my knee, our middle daughter, Kyra, and our youngest, Judah. So uh, 10 years ago, we learned we were pregnant with Kyra, and we were trying to decide on a name for her. And I was studying Galatians chapter 6 for some teaching that I was doing, and I came across Galatians 6, 9. I've heard it lots of times before. You've heard it. I'll put it up on screen for you this morning. Galatians 6, 9 says, let's not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. As I was studying through that and I was looking at the original language, this is originally in Greek, the the word for right time or proper time is the Greek word kairos. And it just struck me in that moment, like our lives, this is is a crazy time, but it's the perfect time to, to have an angel enter into our family. And so we took the word kairos and adapted it for her name. And so her name is Kyra. And that verse... Uh, over the years just became one of my favorite verses of scripture. So if you fast forward the tape of my life, seven years from that moment, a business partner of mine and I decided to start an inpatient treatment center for young men uh, from about the ages of 16 to like 26. Now think about the insanity of that for a moment. A treatment center for young men aged 16 to 26, that's a population that is super challenging, to say the least. If any of y'all have raised uh, teenagers or young adults, you know what I'm talking about. So we loan a bunch of money, we renovate a facility, we get it started, and about a year in, things start to just get totally crazy. And I was a full-time pastor. I also owned an outpatient mental health counseling center and started this inpatient treatment center. I was totally overcommitted. And if everything just went perfect every single day, it was manageable. But like you know, life this side of heaven is never perfect every single day. And I could tell you story after story like the one I'm about to share, but I wanna share with you a story that is probably the lowest point of my life professionally Uh, since since I kind of became an adult, so to speak. So it's about 2018. We've been in business for about a year. It's about 11 o'clock at night, and my phone just starts going off. And it's it's ringing, and it's ringing, and it's ringing. I'm like, oh, man, what, what could be going on? So I grab my phone. It's about 1130, and it's one of our night guys at the treatment center. He's like, Dr. T, we have a big problem. And I'm like, man, it's 11.30, don't tell me that. What's, what's going on? 
He said, well, I was working on a computer and some guys uh, snuck behind me and they found the keys to my car and four of them have stolen my car and they've left. I don't know where they're at. I'm like, dude, it sounded like you just said four guys stole your car and they're running around town and you don't know where they're at. And he's like, that's exactly what I'm telling you. I'm like, oh man. So I'm worn ragged. I mean, to keep all of this stuff going, I'm working 15 hours a day, seven days a week, way overcommitted. I get in my uh, truck and I'm cruising like 20 minutes to get to the treatment center to find, talk to this guy and try to find these guys. Of course, on the way, I get pulled over for speeding. Uh, that's just how it worked during this season of my life. Uh, I'm, I'm driving around town on the phone with the police. The police are looking for the guy, uh, for the guys. About three hours go by and I get a call from the treatment center uh, employee. He's like, hey, they're back. Two of them are OD'd. They're, they're non-responsive. I just called an ambulance. There's an ambulance on the way out here. You got to get out here now. And I just, I just about lose it. I feel totally overwhelmed, totally burned out. I'm depressed. I just, I just don't see a way out of this. And no matter how hard I work, no matter how many hours I put in, it just doesn't feel like anything in my life really is just working. So the ambulance takes the guys to the hospital. They're in critical condition for a few days. By the grace of God, uh, they pull through. And sort of after that like moment where we knew they were gonna be okay happens, I get up the next morning and I'm in the shower and, and I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor. I own a treatment center and an outpatient counseling center. I know about God. I know about mental health, all of, all of the above. And I'm in the shower. This is kind of heavy. And I have the thought, I wish my life was over. This is just, it's more than I can bear. And my, one of my favorite verses came to my mind in that moment. And I just felt God impress upon my spirit, Trent, don't grow weary in doing good for at the right time, you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. I don't have time this morning to share with you all the twists and turns of how that story played out, but that verse proved itself to be true in that season of my life. And I can remember Trace just praying and begging God, God, please let your word be true. Let this come to pass. I need it to be true. And not just that season, but season after season in my life, God's word has proven itself true time and again. And in the New Testament, they didn't have a Bible. People relied on the testimony of others to, to, to know whether or not they could trust the story of Jesus. And so the first thing I wanted to, to do is just to share with you my personal story that it's my testimony and my experience that, that the Bible can be trusted. But I just don't want you to take it based on my experience. I wanna give you some evidence that we commonly use uh, in preaching and teaching to demonstrate that you can trust the Bible. All right, so this is a little bit heavier kind of content. So just hang with me, all right? The first area I would point to to demonstrate that you can trust the Bible is the manuscript evidence we have that demonstrates you can trust the Bible. So over the course of time, we have discovered 5,800 manuscripts or fragments of the New Testament, 5,800. 
And we have even more for the Old Testament. There's about 18,000 manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts in the Old Testament. To, to give you some contrast, you probably heard of the Iliad or the Odyssey. They're, they're Greek epic poems written by a guy named Homer. We have about 1,900 of those. You probably heard of the old English, English poem called Beowulf, right? There's only one of those in existence. So there are many, many times more manuscripts and fragments of New Testament and Old Testament documents than any other documents we have from antiquity. Overwhelmingly more, right? So that's important. But in one of these areas we found these documents, we found something really important. So here's what happened with this area. There's this young shepherd boy in 1947. He's watching over his flock somewhere near the Dead Sea. And what do shepherd boys do when they're like out alone near the Dead Sea watching over their flock? They're throwing rocks and they're doing target practice. So this young guy is apparently picking out entrances to caves and he picks up a rock and he throws it direct hit right into the cave. He looks for another cave. He picks up another rock. He throws it direct hit. It goes into the next cave. Third time he picks up a rock. He throws it direct hit. It goes in the cave. But this time he hears a strange sound like the breaking of a clay pot when he threw his rock into the cave. True story. So he goes and tells some people who tell some people who send some archaeologists out and they discovered what we call now the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of manuscripts uncovered in this particular set of caves near the Dead Sea. One of the interesting finds is we have a whole copy of the manuscript of the book of Isaiah, and that manuscript we found agrees with the text in our Bible uh, from Isaiah at a 95% rate of accuracy. The only disagreements are a couple of spelling errors and a couple of grammatical errors. And that's a good representation of the degree to which all of those manuscripts we have correspond with the actual text we have in our Old and New Testaments, a 95% rate of accuracy. That's way better than some of y'all did in your high school and college exams. Come on, somebody. Um... So manuscript evidence is one area we point to to demonstrate that you can trust the Bible. We also point to the area of prophetic evidence. So the Bible is filled with prophecies, predictions of a future event. I can't go into all of these. I know this is heavy, but for the sake of time, I wanna give you one from the Old Testament and one from the New. So if you're taking notes, Ezekiel 26 is one of the most famous Old Testament prophetic proofs that you can trust the Bible. And so here's the prophecy from Ezekiel. God is, is speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, and here's what he says. Uh, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers and scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out in the sea, she will become a place to spread fishnets, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. She will become plunder for the nations. So here's, here's the way this played out. About 10 years after this prophecy is recorded, this big, nasty king, his name's Nebuchadnezzar, and he's the ruler of the Babylonian Empire. 
He sees Tyre as this city in Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon, and it's the most powerful, prosperous city of that region. And he's like, these guys are going down. And so for 13 years, he lays siege to Tyre. And the Tyrians, they're like pretty crafty, creative people. After 13 years of sieging him, he finally breaches the walls and makes it, Nebuchadnezzar makes it into Tyre. And the Tyrians have all left. They went out the back door and rebuilt their city on an island about a half mile offshore from where the previous city was located. Nebuchadnezzar's like, I'm moving along. So the Tyrians rebuilt their city and the walls of the new city were like 150 feet tall. And they got super arrogant and prideful and like nobody can get in. Our city is surrounded by water. Our walls are 150 feet tall. And they said that for like 250 years until this other really powerful, nasty king named Alexander the Great at about 30 years old decides he's gonna conquer Tyre. And he makes a causeway, finds a way to breach the walls, totally destroys the city, sells everybody either into slavery or kills them all. And this prophecy proved itself true 250 years after it was written. You can Google this. It's a really well-known, commonly used prophetic reference to demonstrate you can trust the Bible. Let me give you one from the New Testament. And it's a prophecy that foretells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hosea chapter 11 and verse one, God, again, speaking through a prophet named Hosea, says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And here's the really important phrase. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So Hosea wrote this about 750 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born. And when, G when Jesus was born, there were three wise men who came to Jerusalem looking for the Messiah. And they happen upon a guy named King Herod, who was the king over Israel at that time. They're like, hey, we're looking for the Messiah. And Herod's like, well, well, I am too. When you find him, come back and tell me where he's at. And so the wise men, they eventually go and find the Messiah. And you know the story. But they don't go back and tell Herod because they realize he's probably got some bad motives. And Herod realizes he's been swindled by these guys. So he sets out a decree that he's gonna kill all the male children born in Israel at this time. And an angel comes and tells Mary and Joseph about this in Matthew chapter two. Here's what happens. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared, when the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and says, get up and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. 750 years later, the prophecy comes true. We also look at historical evidence to demonstrate you can trust the Bible. So I'm gonna put a picture up here on the screen. And this is a picture of what's called the Merneptah Stila. And this is a really famous tablet that describes the conquests of a pharaoh in Egypt named Merneptah around 1,200 years before Jesus was born. 
And in this, in this tablet, all these inscriptions are like, the Pharaoh Menepta conquered this land, and the Pharaoh Menepta conquered this land, and the Pharaoh Menepta conquered this land, and he's the biggest, bad, baddest dude to ever live. And then he conquered this land, and this land, and this land. And then near the bottom of the tablet, it says, and he conquered Israel and laid it to waste, blotting out Israel's seed. This is extra biblical historical evidence from the time that the book of Judges would have been written that demonstrates clearly the nation of Israel was powerful enough to record on this tablet in the history of Egypt that this Pharaoh conquered that land. It points to the fact that you can trust the Bible based on historical evidence. In the New Testament, we see a couple of examples like this. Again, I can't point to them all, but I want you to know this. So when you're battling in life and maybe filled with doubt, you can go, hey, we got manuscript evidence. We got prophetic evidence. We got this Merneptah Stila tablet. And the New Testament bears witness that the historical accuracy of the Bible is true. So here's what happens in Acts chapter 18. Let me give this to you. The apostle Paul meets a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome and Paul went to see him. So right there is a historical statement that we can use to say, okay, did a guy named Claudius really ask the Jews to leave Rome about AD 49? And there's a historian named Suetonius who wrote the histories of the Roman emperors. One of the guys he writes about, you guessed it, Emperor Claudius. And what does Suetonius tell us that Emperor Claudius did around 49 years after Jesus was born? He actually issued an edict to banish the Jews from Rome. And the quote from the writings of Suetonius is, because all the Jews were rioting at the name of Christus. What he's saying is, you mention the name of Christ in Rome within earshot of a Jewish person and somebody gonna throw some punches. And it got so bad that Claudius issued an edict and was like, all these people have to leave. So Priscilla and Achilla left and Paul goes to visit them to see how they're doing. Historical evidence that you can trust the Bible. So why, why is this important for you to know? If you're like me, when you're going through a stormy season, I doubt just about everything. I find myself in a shower thinking maybe it would just be easier if I wasn't even here. And I'm looking for an anchor, desperate for anything that would help me push through that season. And man, the enemy wants to whisper in your ear, don't trust the Bible. How do you know you can trust it? And I wanted you to have a little bit of evidence, my personal experience, evidence from manuscript, from prophecy, and from history. So if you're struggling, you can go, you know what? I can trust the Bible. Because sometimes in life, you're gonna find yourself in a check your engine light coming on kind of a season. And you, want, you know what I'm talking about. You've had a vehicle and the check engine lights come on before. My check engine light is on in my truck right now. And I don't know anything about trucks. So when the check engine light comes on, I need an anchor. I'm stressed. I'm thinking this is going to cost thousands of dollars and am I going to be stranded on the side of the road? So what's the anchor I look for when the check engine light comes on in my truck? It's my manual, my owner's manual. And that's really the way the Bible functions as an anchor in our life. When our check engine light of life comes on, 
Use the Bible as a manual to help anchor you in those seasons. So I want to share with you a few ways that the Bible can function like a manual, anchoring you in the midst of when the check engine light comes on in your life, kinds of seasons. All right, the first way a manual can help you in those moments is that a manual tells you about something, tells you about your car. It tells you what not to do, and it tells you what to do as it relates to that car. And it also tells you how to fix something if you've done something you shouldn't have done or you haven't done something you should have done. So a lot of years ago, there's this guy who's really talented in ministry. He planted a lot of churches. He preached a lot of really powerful sermons. He was a theologian and a writer and just a warrior for God. And he notices this young guy named Timothy who has a really powerful faith and a lot of talent for ministry. And so this old guy who's a really powerful preacher and evangelist, his name's Paul. We talk to him, we talk about him in terms of calling him the Apostle Paul. He writes Timothy a couple of letters about how to do ministry and how to do life. And what he tells Timothy is, hey, Timothy, when the check engine light comes on in your life, consult the manual. So in the second letter Paul writes to Timothy, this is the way Paul puts it. He says, Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true. Emmanuel teaches us about something. The Bible teaches us about truth and about God. He says it teaches us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It teaches us what not to do. And then by definition, it shares with us what we should be doing. And so let me ask you a question. Here's another way Emmanuel functions, but before we get there, let me ask you a question. It's honesty. Now you're in the house of the Lord. God will know if you're not being honest here. How many of you have read the owner's manual to your vehicle that you regularly drive cover to cover? Come on, somebody. It's honesty time. How many have read it cover to cover? Just glance around the room, church family. Ain't nobody out there read their owner's manual for their vehicle. Now, how many of you are still out there driving the vehicle like you know all what's up in the owner's manual? A show of hands. Everybody out there still driving it. Nobody out there actually read it, right? In life, you can drive your vehicle without knowing what the owner's manual says. You don't have to know about the owner's manual, in other words, to operate your car, but man, it sure makes your ability to operate the car much easier. So in the, in the poetry we have in the Bible from the book of Psalms, there's a whole like poem in, in the book of Psalms and every single verse talks about the Bible. And that's Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 talks about that very idea in the 105th verse of that poem. And so here's what, here's what, here's what Psalm 119, 105 says. Your word, the Bible, is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Now look, church family, you don't have to have the lights on in a room to walk through that room, right? You don't have a lamp to light your path to walk through a dark room. But goodness, is it not easier to walk through a dark room when the lights are on or you got a lamp to guide your way? If you don't have a light on, you're doing the, you're doing the shuffle, right? You're like one foot a little bit out in front, kind of shuffling around to make sure you're not stepping on anything. That's how I walk through my garage when the lights are off. One time I was in my garage and the lights shut off automatically and I didn't even try to get through. I just called for help. Like, cause it's, it's, it's dangerous right? To walk through a room with the lights off. 
It's so much easier when you're living by the light of the word of God. And it's also more likely that you're gonna get off course if you're walking in a dark room. But if you allow the manual of the word of God to provide some guidance, man, even in the most difficult storms you face in life, you're gonna feel like you can navigate your way and stay out of harm's way as you're navigating those seasons. Another way a manual can help you is it can give you some peace and confidence and security when the check your engine light comes on. I didn't know what was going on with my vehicle. I consulted it and I felt like I got a little bit of a sense for how to proceed, for how to respond and for how to act. There's just wisdom in a manual. And in the Bible, there was a really wise guy, maybe the wisest guy, and I'm not meaning like slanderous wise guy. I mean, a genuinely really wise, knew a lot of really valuable stuff. And he was wise because he prayed and asked God to make him wise, and God granted his prayer request. And this guy's name was Solomon. He did a lot of really incredible things, and he recorded the, the, the kind of nuggets of wisdom that he learned throughout his life in a book called Proverbs. And so God influences him to write the book of Proverbs, and this is the idea. This is from Proverbs chapter one. Solomon writes, whoever listens to me, and the way we interpret that is whoever's listening to the word of God will live in safety when the check engine light season in your life happens. Be at ease and without fear of harm. Now, when you read this, I, I, wanna, I wanna make it really clear, there's a difference in being at ease and things in life being easy. And I'm not convinced life this side of heaven is ever easy, but if you have peace, confidence, and security, then even when the check engine light comes on in your life, you're gonna still feel at ease. That's one way that the Bible can anchor you just like a manual. Right, but sometimes it's not about you. Sometimes it's not about you knowing the manual for you. Sometimes if you know the manual, I'll, I'll say it like this, then you can help others who don't know the manual. So I'm going back to history many, many, many years ago. There's a guy who's living in an area of the world he's not supposed to be. There's a man named Ezra who's living in Babylon. And he's supposed to live in Israel, but he doesn't because that mean, nasty king who first invaded Tyre captured all the Israelites and carried them away to Babylon and made them slaves. So Ezra's been there for a long time. Ezra's friends are there and so are his family. And he longs to get out of captivity in Babylon. He wants to get back to the promised land, back to Israel. In other words, the check engine light in Ezra's life had been on for a long time. And what does he decide to do to get out of there? How does, he how does he decide to proceed? Well, we get some insight into that in the book that bears his name. This is from Ezra chapter seven and verse 10. Ezra devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord, the word of God, and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. How did Ezra get out of captivity? How did he lead others out of captivity? He got to know what the manual said and decided he was gonna put it in practice and help others do the same. Sometimes it's helpful for us to know the manual, to know the word of God, so we can help those who don't. That's one of our mantras here at Trace. We wanna be able to extend hope when life hurts. And one way you can do that is getting to know the word of God and using it as a manual to encourage others. But Emmanuel can also get you in touch with the maker of the manual. If you know the manual, you can get in touch with the maker of the manual. 
And this is maybe most important. Years and years ago, I read all the Chronicles of Narnia written by a guy named C.S. Lewis. Hopefully you've read them, they're awesome. And when I finished the series, like, I felt like I knew the author, C.S. Lewis, personally. His kind of personality and persona, his, his character kind of uh, uh, jumped off the pages at me. I, I felt like I could almost get in touch with how he thought about just life in general. And that's the way that the Bible works, man. You spend some time getting to know it and you end up not just learning about facts, but about the God who authored the book itself. And this is taught actually in, in the Bible. So one of Jesus's best friends, this particular guy would say he was Jesus's very best friend. His name was John. And he wrote John's gospel, first, second, third John. He wrote Revelation. And near the tail end of John's gospel, here's why John says what was written was written. And this doesn't just go for the New Testament. This goes for every single page from Genesis to Revelation. He said, these things were written that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. You're not just learning about principles when you're reading the Bible, you're learning about a person, God the Father manifested through Jesus Christ the Son. And as you read, you'll be drawn to God and you'll be moved to faith. And, and by believing, you'll have life. You talk about an anchor in the midst of a storm, that's an anchor. Trace, you can trust the Bible. You can trust the Bible based on experience, based on evidence. And when you put it into practice, you'll find that the Bible is like a manual. It teaches you about something. It shows you what to do and what not to do. The Bible can keep you at ease when, when the check engine light of your life comes on. It can fill you with peace and confidence and security when you wouldn't know what to do otherwise. It can help you help others and it can get you more deeply in touch with God. And because of that, it can be an anchor for you in even the most terrible storms you experience in life. I hope you'll take that and, and just lean into it and wrestle with it a little bit. And most of all, I hope that you'll trust the Bible. You're gonna need it. So we're gonna go into our time of response now. And I don't know what you may be wrestling with, but I just hope as we move into this time of response that God's maybe provoked you to just trust his word a little bit more, to be anchored in him a little bit more, and to hold fast in the midst of whatever you're going through. And lean into this space. So if you're new to Trace, we have communion tables set up at the four corners of this auditorium. We invite you to take communion with us. Uh, so after I pray, you can move from your seat, uh, grab a communion packet and make your way back to your seat and just kind of, kind of lean into that space and just let the Lord refresh and encourage you. This is also a time where you can partner with Trace, the ministry and mission of Trace by giving. Uh, you can give, there, there are some boxes you can give uh, on either side of the doors you entered in when you came into this auditorium. You can also give on our app or online. And I just thank you so much for your generosity and you're willing to partner with us 
here at Trace Church. And I'm so thankful you've decided to join us today. Father's Day, there's a lot going on. And I really appreciate your willingness to come and just fellowship a little bit. So let's pray and let's move into our time of response now. Precious Heavenly Father, come before you just so thankful, God, for your word. Thankful that your word can be trusted, God. We, we learn that from experience, from evidence. God, and when we put it into practice and use it like a manual, it holds us fast like an anchor when the check engine light seasons of our life happen. God, I just pray that this church would be encouraged. I just ask that they would lean into you and lean on your word and that this space would just be an encouraging, uplifting space for each person here today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.